to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Medea Ocher, LARB's managing editor. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. Um, so we're going to be listening to an interview that we did with Charles Yu and his new novel is Interior Chinatown. Yeah, it's a very unique novel in that it is written like a screenplay and it's also it's also very meta and it the story sort of keeps falling into itself and it's a it's a real pleasure but it's a little bit difficult to talk about um I think in a way to even just describe the plot but highly recommended very fun and Charles Yu actually is a screenwriter so mm-hmm. he he knows whereof he speaks <laughs> exactly yeah so he yeah. so he's kind of an expert at tweaking the form and playing with a lot of the conventions and yes and yeah and he he's worked for like I, Westworld Westworld was maybe the most famous show but it sounds like he you know written for a bunch of shows and he was also a lawyer right so he's writing more full-time now but um I have I'm, you written a screenplay Kate I have what was it about? That's hard to say. Okay. <laughs> it was a, it was about the uh, a trip to Las Vegas between um a woman and her dead partner's best friend. Okay. And so it was like were, a road movie. Kind of. And okay. then like maybe there was some and also like a romantic love triangle because hmm. maybe that the friend had been in love with the dead boyfriend and but I, I don't think that was, I don't think that's what I was meant to do. And I'm so impressed um, but with people who like see movies in their head and then write them down. I, I could never do that. It's true. I don't think I could either. And um, Charles did it in both movie and novel form. I know. Yeah. I, I, it, it, having tried, I'm, I'm very, very impressed. And um, uh, I I like reading screenplays actually because especially if I've seen the movie it's like it, it the the recall of the film it's it's mm. like really amazing how you start to play the movie in your head as you're reading it like I did that with Double Indemnity when I was trying to uh, study my screen how to write my screenplay then I oh. read like these great screenplays like by, uh, so Double Indemnity I also read Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho which is more of an unconventional screenplay I've never seen that movie wow I know you're missing out. I'll go see it right now. You go watch uh, My Own Private Idaho and let's listen to Charles Yu in the meantime. Okay, I'll report back. We have Charles Yu in the studio with us today. Charles is the author of three books, including the novel How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. He received the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 Award and was nominated for two Writers Guild of America Awards for his work on HBO series Westworld. He has also written for shows on FX, AMC, and HBO. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Wired, among other publications. His latest book is called Interior Chinatown. It's a very exciting book. Congratulations, Charles. Thank you. And we thought we would start the show by asking you just to read a short part of it because we'd like listeners to get an idea of the perhaps somewhat experimental or unusual format of the book. Sure. Okay. Love to. Interior, Golden Palace, Morning. In the world of black and white, Everyone starts out as generic Asian man. Everyone who looks like you, anyway. Unless you're a woman, in which case you start out as pretty Asian woman. You all work at Golden Palace, 
formerly Jade Palace, formerly Palace of Good Fortune. There's an aquarium in the front and cloudy tanks of rock crabs and two-pound lobsters crawling over each other in the back. Laminated menus offer the lunch special, which comes with a bowl of fluffy white rice and choice of soup, egg drop, or hot and sour. A neon Qingdao sign blinks and buzzes behind the bar in the dimly lit space, a dropped ceiling room with lacquered, ornate woodwork, or some imitation thereof, everything simmering in a warm, seedy red glow thrown off by the dollar store paper lanterns festooned above, many of them darkened by dead moths, the paper yellowing, ripped, curling in on itself. The bar is fully stocked with top-shelf spirits up top, middle-shelf liquor at eye level, and down at the bottom, a happy hour shelf of booze that you will regret for sure. The new thing everyone is excited about is called the lychee margarita teeny, which seems like a lot of flavors. Not that you've had one, they're 14 bucks. Sometimes patrons leave a sip at the bottom of the glass, and if you're quick, while you go through the swinging door that separates the front of the house from the back, you can have a taste. You've seen some of the other generic Asian men do it. It's a risk, though. The director's always got an eye out, ready to fire someone for the smallest infraction. You wear the uniform, white shirt, black pants, black slipper-like shoes that have no traction whatsoever. Your haircut is not good, to say the least. Black and white always look good. A lot of it has to do with the light. They're the heroes. They get the hero lighting, designed to hit their faces just right. Designed to hit White's face just right, anyway. Someday you want the light to hit your face like that. To look like the hero. Or, for a moment, to actually be the hero. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So, I was so impressed with the formal experimentation here, because this is in a screenplay format, and you even use the font. Like, is it Courier? Yes, Courier. Courier. <laughs> so it seems like a document. But then at the same time, it's in the second person. So it seems like you immediately broke a major rule right. of screenplay <laughs> writing and that it didn't have to be so formulaic as that this is exactly a screenplay. It's something different and it's its own thing. So I'd love for you to talk about coming to the form of this book and how you did decide upon it and about using the second person in the screenplay format. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. I fought with myself for a long time about first person, third person, and second person didn't appear until pretty late in the game. And when it did, it was a little bit of, oh, that's it. But also, uh oh, can I really do this? Do I really want to write a whole book in second person? Is that going to annoy people? Because <laughs> I couldn't remember reading too many. You know, Bright Lights, Big City, I think was one of the first ones I remember. Jay McInerney, I think, wrote it. In, I think it's in second person. Yeah. And yet, it did unlock something for me because there's something about, for me anyway, seeing an Asian American character whose subjectivity we're allowed to get inside of. I mean, the book is largely about how these Asian American characters are the background. They're almost props. You know, Chinatown itself is the setting, but it's not what the story is really about. And so to tell it that way, both, I'm hoping, allows access into Willis Wu's, you know, the protagonist's consciousness in a way that it wouldn't in first person. But, you know, I did wrestle with that. And mm -hmm. On the screenplay of it all, it it is weird to see a book in Courier. <laughs> you know, it's like the font I use to make my college papers longer. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, the first time I opened it, I was like, this is great. I'm glad they really did it in Courier. But also, hmm, is this going to, you know, you expect Times New Roman or something stately like that. 
But it felt, like you said, I think you put it well, it's like it feels like a document. It should feel like that. And I think pretty early on, I didn't want to be married to a strict screenplay. So it was a little bit of a finding the balance of can I use most of the form but have some play within there? And hopefully I struck the right balance. So the main character is Willis Wu, but he also inhabits different roles throughout the text, as do each and every one of the characters that he encounters. And sometimes the roles that they inhabit are generic Asian man, right. but sometimes they're a little bit more specific. Can you talk about the roles and how you came upon deciding which roles because it seems like a slippery slope in some ways, right? Because often what a reader wants is some sense of character and role, but the book keeps sort of pulling the rug out from under you in that way. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I love the question. I think it's by design, hopefully, <laughs> mostly intentional. And it comes out of something personal. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the mixing of Willis's role as generic Asian man and how his job seems to bleed into his identity and vice versa, to me, it gets at something true in my own experience. I have a lot of roles. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm also a son to aging parents. For a long time before I quit to become a writer full-time, I was a lawyer, Even when I started the very first version of this book, I was still working full-time as a lawyer. So that was a role, and I did that for a while. And so I think both in the sort of personal family sphere of our lives and also in the work sphere of our lives, we have these roles, and they do sort of bleed together. And you kind of stitch together, I, at least speaking for myself, sort of stitch together a performance of like, who do I have to be at this moment? Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of where it came from. But the book is also partly about the limitations that an Asian man, Chinese immigrant in particular, is allowed to play within a certain, sort of within his life, not to give anything away. He does sort of break through those limitations in some capacity. But we see immediately that he's circumscribed to a particular set of roles. Right. So Willis Wu is, he's Taiwanese-American and his parents are from Taiwan. And he kind of has this sort of Groundhog Day sort of existence. You know, he's fairly crappy life, I guess. He lives upstairs from a Chinese restaurant in a kind of single room occupancy hotel. And every day he goes down to his job, which is to be generic Asian man number three slash delivery guy. And his dream is to become Kung Fu guy. And that's the arc. You know, that's the ceiling of what he, f- at least what he feels like he can achieve. That's the prescribed sort of terminal role for an Asian male in this show and the show is called black and white so it's as if willis lives i guess it's a little bit like a charlie kaufman movie Mm -hmm. he both kind of lives in this show but it's also his job i guess it's like kaufman asking that i think the levels of reality blend together a little bit and also that because the entire thing is in the screenplay format it's like the whole thing is also a show or a film or it doesn't kind of turn on and off like he's at work and then he's back so even his existence in the SRO with his parents, you know, is put in as though it were part of the TV show, let's say. Exactly. You know? Right. There's a front stage, backstage aspect to it. And, you know, one of the books that it's epigrammed in there is this book by Irving Goffman, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, which I happened upon years ago and it just sort of stayed with me. And that was a big part of the model is regardless of, I mean, race is a very big part of the story here, but 
regardless of race, there are roles that we just in any interaction, if we were to have to pause this interview right now and we'd all maybe sit quietly, maybe one of us would check our phones and within a few seconds we would either continue the performance of what we're doing in front of each other's faces or we would sort of gently step back from that performance. So I think that kind of framework was really important to me. This idea of what you're saying, Kate, is the whole thing is a show, but there are moments when you peek out from the curtain or hide behind the curtain and when maybe you're not sure what your role actually is. And that's a big part of the story for Willis. I wonder, too, I mean, a lot of what the book seems to be about as well as representation in culture versus these more personal moments, like with his family, with his aging parents. Basically, I have this feeling like all all films have genre elements, but without seeing a variety of roles for yourself projected back to yourself. And I think that's another reason why the second person works really well, because it's kind of like able to capture someone as both an object and a subject. But how much, you know, just from your own personal experience, how much is representation of Asian Americans in film and television kind of affected your own sense of self? Absolutely. I mean, it's really great. I love the way you put it. it. Object and subject. I mean, it's the you is both being dictated to Willis and it is him talking to himself or hearing his inner monologue, but also the prescription of the role that he's been giving. And this ties back to what I, I still haven't managed to answer from your question but about the roles. There are, you know, roles that I grew up watching and to some extent still see on screen. Asians on screens tend to work in restaurants or be doing some sort of martial arts. I mean, I was watching something with my daughter on Nickelodeon the other day, and there was a character who was a sushi chef, and he was definitely not Asian, and he was doing a pretty terrible accent. It's like, at the same time, you've got Aquafina winning a Golden Globe. It's like, there's steps forward, and then there's still that. So all of which is to say there's certainly been a lot of progress, but for the most part, it's still a thing in our house, for instance, when we see an Asian on screen. It's still kind of notable as much as there's been a lot of progress. And so, you know, in thinking about the roles, I kind of went to some of the classics, you know, I mean, the sort of dragon lady stereotype or the Chinese food delivery guy, the people that you tended to see in sort of tiny, tiny bit parts on for instance, procedural cop shows or in other sort of genre shows. And it was actually surprisingly fun to come up with a list of them. It felt liberating mm -hmm. to write down, oh, here's like the eight things you could be if you wanted to be an Asian actor. <laughs> Anytime between now and about five years ago, right. this is all you could be. Not the romantic lead, not the lead cop on the case, you know, maybe the cop who does the sciency part. So and then the interesting or one of the interesting parts in the book is that there's also this flip side, which is the kind of role that he idolizes, which, as you had said, is the kung fu master. Right. And his mother asks him to try to be better than that or look for something different. But it takes him a long time to figure out that there could be something other than that. Were there roles like that when you were younger that you felt, okay, here's like my golden thing that I could be or that I could accomplish that you learned also from media or from movies or books, anything? When I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. And I don't know if I gravitated toward that because I felt like that's something where, well, you can decide to do that whether or not anyone lets you do that. Mm -hmm. I think from a pretty early age, I internalized a sense that I didn't want to be in the center of any 
room. And I didn't want a whole bunch of people to be looking to me for what to do. But also I didn't, I don't know, I guess I couldn't imagine working as part of an, a team where I'd have to interact with people, maybe because of some of the internalization, maybe because I felt like I couldn't be the boss of things and I couldn't even be an equal. I'm not sure exactly where that came from. I mean, maybe it came from media. Maybe it came from an internalization of watching my own parents as immigrants, you know, people mm -hmm. with accents, people who had, you know, especially my dad has a PhD, you know, highly educated, but felt their own limits as Americans. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Charles Yu, whose new book is Interior Chinatown. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Jay Hoberman in the studio with us today. Jay Hoberman is a film critic. He was the film critic at The Village Voice for 30 years. He has written pieces for Art Forum, New York Review of Books, and many other publications. His most recent book is called Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. And Jim is here to recommend a book for us. Jim, what book are you going to recommend? I would like to recommend Victor Serge's Mexican Notebooks. And um, let me start by explaining Victor Serge is really a singular figure in 20th century uh, history, the first half of the 20th century. He was the child of Russian revolutionaries who were in exile in um, Belgium. So he grew up in, uh, in, in Belgium, went to France, was an anarchist, was jailed before World War I, got out, participated in a, uh, an abortive uh, anarchist uprising in Barcelona, was uh, jailed again, and then during the war was, was released and made his way towards Russia, a country he had never seen, although his parents were from there, so it must mm -hmm. have been very much in his mind, and, and became a Bolshevik but really never stopped being an anarchist. I mean, he was, so he was a Bolshevik, and he, was, he, he, he certainly fought for the revolution, and he even got a, a job in the, in the hierarchy, but he was very critical. And uh, uh, he was a common turn agent in the 20s. He was in, in, in Vienna and Berlin, so he got to know really you know, a, a whole a number of prominent revolutionaries, and then he went back. And uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the power struggle that was going on in the Kremlin, he was on the side of Trotsky, on the, mm -hmm. the, the oppositionists. The wrong side. The wrong side, yes. Yeah. So he, he sided with, uh, with, with Trotsky, and uh, um, as a result, he was exiled, which is better than being shot. And uh, he was, at this time, he had begun writing novels, too, which is amazing that he had both, he was able to do these things. He was, you know, a political pamphleteer, but he also, you know, was a novelist. He, the novels were published in France. Hmm. So he had a, a, a reputation there, and it was because the French writers uh, campaigned to get him freed. And Stalin sort of do this. This is a period of the popular front, so Stalin sort of threw them a bone. Mm -hmm. Serge went to, went to France, uh, was, again, working with Trotsky, um, although they didn't agree on everything, and was very involved in, in uh, a, a particular group in the Spanish Civil War, Anyway, when World War II broke out, he had to he had to leave France. He was on he went to uh, uh, south of France, like a number of prominent artists, leftist, uh, Jewish intellectuals, and so on. He was able to get on one of these boats 
and but he couldn't come to the United States because mm-hmm. he 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 was a communist, so they wouldn't let him in. So he wound up in Mexico. Okay, so th- these uh, uh, journals that uh, um, that he kept are they're they're fantastic. I mean, they're 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 as, as good as his novels in terms of his descriptions of uh, of, of what Mexico is like, and it's completely mm-hmm. alien to him. I mean, he's. Uh, and and also he gets there and it's uh, uh, less than a year after Trotsky was uh, was assassinated, and so he knows Trotsky's widow. I mean, and he's, he he talks about her and what the situation is there, and he gets politically involved. You know, there are many many refugees from the uh, Spanish Civil War living in 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 Mexico. Some of them are. Uh, uh, Stalinists, and some of them are anti-Stalinists. So there's this whole thing going on, where again he's being politically, you know, uh, wow. uh, persecuted in a way. But what impressed me most about this, he's describing all this stuff, is this guy had such intelligence and such curiosity. He's also he's writing about Mexico, he's writing about modern art because he's you know uh, uh, he, he's interested in that. He's he's reading. Uh, Kafka. He's talking to all these, you know, what, refugee psychoanalysts mm-hmm. who were there. It's just an amazing book, and you know, it's written by somebody. He, who is he writing for? I mean, he's writing for the desk drawer, really. He's so marginalized, and yet, and he's also quite pessimistic because he sees, you know, that Stalin. He's he, you know, he's watching what's going on in World War Two, and and yet he's able to keep this. Um, it's uh, it's sort of like this faith in in, in human intelligence. Mm. It's it's very very moving, and uh, and then he died in 1947, and the situation was he was he was st- in his 50s. He wasn't that old, um, and the situation was still unresolved. And he again was pessimistic about about the about the post war world. But I I find the book just inspiring. First of all, the quality of the writing is great. You know his his ideas are always interesting, but as I say, I mean the, just the, his capacity. To keep this critical intelligence alive is really tremendous, and so I, I, I recommend this book. Can I ask you, how did you come to this book? Well, I've been a Surge fan mm-hmm. <laughs> for okay. a long time, and I was, you know, when it, when it was when it was published, I they discovered these papers quite recently. Uh, I would say in the in the in the last you know half dozen or ten or ten years mm-hmm. uh, in in Mexico. So I was I was fascinated. First, it was it published in France, and then you know translated. The publisher sent it to me, <laughs> but I would have gotten it anyway. I mean, you know, I was uh, uh, because you know, I, to me, he's one of the the underappreciated heroes of uh, both of the uh, the international left and uh, and of the twentieth century, and it's just uh, kind of thrilling to 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 be able to be, you know, you're really inside his head mm-hmm. when he's uh, when he's writing these things. It sounds fantastic. Would you give us the title of the book again and the author? The title is Notebooks 1936 to 1947, and the author is Victor Serge. Thank you so much, Jim. We've been speaking with Jay Hoberman. His latest book is called Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. Thanks again. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM. We now return to our conversation with Charles Yu, author of Interior Chinatown.
I think there's some sense in the book that because the cop show, black and white, but it also has these, like, it's a white detective, a female detective and a, and a black male detective. And there's some sense that both those polls are, like, well documented, well understood, and that they, as you even read in, in your introduction, I think that, you know, the light gets them both, or at least the, as the white one. I mean, that that's something about being Asian American, like you're in the middle of these two poles. And that and, and in the book, there's also like a lot of documentation of specific laws against Chinese immigrants and the history of the immigrant experience of the Chinese immigrant experience in this country and the kind of dirty history of it. But I don't know if that's quite acknowledged as often, let's say, as slavery or, you know, these things that are just more seem more totemic um, in American culture. Have you felt that as well, or do you do you see that also kind of factoring into the way that Asian Americans are represented? That it's just it's not that people don't quite know the extremity of their own history. I, I think so. I think that's both something that it probably isn't acknowledged publicly as often as other sorts of injustice, and also internally. I would say, at least speaking for myself, it's a question of sometimes I have wondered how discriminated against am I allowed to feel, right? Mm-hmm. Do, do I really have anything to complain about? Haven't I had plenty of my own privileges, you know? Um, for instance, as a man, you know, as a uh, heterosexual, cisgendered man, I have plenty of privileges of my own and, and blind spots. So, um, and yet I think there are obviously plenty of history of discrimination against Asians and Chinese specifically in America. And yet, I, I, what I hope in the story to capture is that it's it's not just about Asians specifically, but it's about how, for instance, black and white are trapped in their own roles. And that in a larger sense, that whole system locks everybody in. If If it's seen as this A versus B dichotomy, and that America is the story of these two races trying to figure it out, that loses an essential part of the picture. And if Asians are important in that, and I don't mean to use this group monolithically, but if if there is a kind of edge case thing that's interesting about Asians, it's that when you close your eyes, do you think of an American, and you think of what's an American look like? Do you think of an Asian? Because it, Asians have been here for a couple hundred years, but the fact that it's hard to imagine that as your first image of an American says something about the picture that sort of everybody is is visualizing. I think if mm-hmm. it's very presumptuous of me, but that's mm-hmm. sort of where this book came from. Yeah, I, yeah. In that way too, I wanted to also ask you about Chinatown as a setting, um, because it seems like you know Chinatown historically have. I, you know, maybe like the one in L.A. is it is 100 years old. I don't even know if it's that old, but they themselves, they seem like a metaphor for kind of other aspects of, of the book where it's like there are these idealized or kind of stereotypical representations of a place where actual Asian immigrants often lived. And I think from what I'm gathering from the book, maybe because they were ghettoized into some of these communities. Right. And, and there's also some, uh, you take some quotes from um, a writer about, the kind of role of Chinatown in America. So I just wanted to, you to talk about using that as a setting. I happened upon these, you know, a couple of books in, in research that are quoted in the book. And it was fascinating to me to find out the dual role that Chinatown did play in Hollywood specifically. And I think in the imagination in a larger sense of 
oh, here's the place where this kind of person lives, you know, and it's such a clear demarcate. To me, it's still probably the most obvious. It's like the first thing you think of when you think of an ethnic enclave is the, mm-hmm. where's the Chinatown in this city, right? And and now there's like a Thai town and a little Armenia and it's and it's and this kind of wonderful, oh, there's a little version of everything. But I think for whatever reason, I guess Chinatown may, maybe because actually I wouldn't guess at the reason, but it, it was used as this kind of movie set version of itself you know it's playing asia but also our idea of asia and it was fascinating to me to read a little bit about the fact that they were constructed to some extent to look not so much like the authentic article but the western idea of what that is supposed to look like i've I've felt like it sort of wrote itself in, in that respect to set it there what was your first interaction with a Chinatown? With a Chinatown. That's, yeah. Um, I grew up in L.A., so it was, mm-hmm. I guess it was Monterey Park more than it was L.A. downtown Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in the sense of that's a enclave, you know, a right. lot of people from Taiwan especially. And, um, and then when I went to, I went to college at Berkeley, and so I spent a little bit of time in Oakland Chinatown. And that was a very different flavor. That was people largely from like a specific region in China, a specific, you know, like even more local than that, like a couple of villages. And and so there were different kinds of restaurants and different, you know, that was mostly Cantonese speakers up there versus Taiwanese or Mandarin speakers down here. So those are sort of the early experiences. And do you remember, well, just because something that struck me is when he talks about growing up in Chinatown is one of the interesting things that has to happen from something like that is not only are you sort of separate from the rest of the larger community in which you live by by having to live in this particular place, but also that you are living within what others think the place you're from is like. Right, right. Um, And so you neither have a sense of where you are or where you've been or where your family has been because neither of these things are really representative of any place at all. And so it must be, I think, in some ways sort of an unmooring experience to recognize people or recognize language or, right? But then know that or understand at some point that the place itself is totally fake or it's like it's a totally construction yeah that for a child it might be confusing kind of in a way yeah for for me it's like a kid coming from the west side of la Mm -hmm. to visit say let's go eat some authentic chinese food over in monterey park or san gabriel it's a little bit of like i'm this micro tourist going to a different part of my same city but all of a sudden i hear i don't hear much english you know and i'm I'm feeling like the subtle gradations of like, I'm feeling like an alien among people that also f- feel like aliens within this land. And they know I'm different, you know, and I feel the difference acutely. And, you know, in the book, I was trying to, I didn't pick a specific Chinatown. I had LA and Oakland and to some extent New York, because I lived in New York for a while and visited that Chinatown. I sort of had them all sort of blended in my head. Because I think there's, it's also a China. I mean, it's the title of the book. There's a sense in which you create that inside yourself, and that's where Willis is. And it's close to my own experience in that I didn't grow up in an actual enclave, but I felt that sort of kinship or a closeness with the idea that a feeling like an outsider or within an island in a larger community. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the challenges of this book were in that 
you have to balance. I mean, you're working off stereotypes. You're working off a certain flatness, and that's part of the aesthetic, and that's kind of part of the message of the book, and that's what you're using. But at the same time, you are it's not that postmodern in that there's not actual character in the book as well. How did you balance um, kind of, you know, maximizing the stereotype for all the purposes you wanted to and also like letting a little bit of real emotion in there as well to kind of, you know, really keep readers drawn to what they're reading? Yeah, that's a good question. That was a big challenge in writing it. My editor and and my agent, who also reads very closely, they helped a lot with that, where I think sometimes it would veer toward, or versions of it veered toward making a point. But yeah. it really has to start from a story and from the character's emotional journey throughout the book. And it was a hard balance to strike. Um, I think, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I... I or what did you see as, I mean, what did you see as Willis's, as kind of his arc as a character? I mean, like, what was the underlying emotional journey that you wanted him to go on? Yeah, for Willis, I think it's breaking out of his role. But it's not, I think he he starts the book thinking that he's supposed to climb the ladder. And that, to some extent for me, mirrors a sort of Asian American mindset, which is through achievement, we can assimilate. Or through achievement, we can get to a place where we don't need to assimilate maybe as much and because we're economically independent. And so Willis has this idea that he's going to succeed according to the rules of the system in which he is born into. And without spoiling the book, hopefully, that when he comes to play different roles that aren't the roles that are prescribed by the show Black and White, I think he hopefully learns that none of those fit him all the way and that he's really got to be himself. So there is a part in the book in which, well, one, we have these uh, instances of former laws that were enacted in the United States, but also in which there is a trial that does happen. And there's a quite clearly a critique of the American justice system within the book. I mean, so you said you were a lawyer, Mm -hmm. so you, you... you might know what you're talking about, but um, in theory, in theory, yeah. Um, so, from your experience, how? Well, one, how do you? Uh, this might be too big of a question, but how do you understand the faults of the American justice system? Mm. But then, how did you start to sort of try to integrate them into the book? Did you know that that's where the book would uh, somehow? Did you know that the book might deal with that as a potential problem? I don't think I started out always knowing that it would end up in court. But when it became obvious that law and order was a strong template, mm-hmm. it did it did feel like, oh, that's a natural progression of where it could go. And that led to, you know, some research on the, mm-hmm. the cases, for instance. I, I, don't, I hope this doesn't make the book sound like the, the second half becomes a, a legal case book. It it's not it's at all. Yeah. yeah, we can no, assure no. listeners. Just, <laughs> still entertaining. Um, but... It did seem like, you know, there was a way that we could get a little bit of vegetables in there with <laughs> mm-hmm. with hopefully the, the yummy parts. And it, it, I hopefully it is also intertwined with the actual story because Willis learning about some of that history and the other characters actually 
participating in a trial of what is this kind of artificial system we've constructed for ourselves here and getting back to some of the historical, you know, basically classifications of race that were codified into law for to allow, for instance, the ghettoization, like zoning laws or that were based on race or um, restrictive sort of having to do with where people could live or work and who they can marry, that cases that I think are maybe familiar in a black-white context, but mm-hmm. less familiar in a uh, in Asian context or Asian-American context, I, I felt like it felt like the right place for the story to end up. And, it, you know, I am a lawyer. I wasn't that kind of lawyer, but uh-huh. <laughs> it was interesting to go back and actually read some of these cases. So you've worked in Hollywood um, and specifically on this show, Westworld, which I heard is one amazing, but I've never seen. And it's a science fiction show. Right. Um, so I'm wondering how much, if, if, if at all, you've experienced some of the kind of uh, stereotyping um, and as applied to the way you have to write characters or what their race has to be, or if just by virtue of it being science fiction, these kind of like more generic stereotype things that happen on other genres of you know television and film uh, maybe haven't don't apply as much or just talk about your in experience in Hollywood in general yeah and, but and, and, and your experience in Hollywood in general like have right. you been kind of like you know asked to write like any generic Asian man characters <laughs> <laughs> um, or been treated like a generic Asian man writer by colleagues or anything like that. I have not, luckily, and I think that's a reflection of a lot of progress. And I think Hollywood writers' rooms, at least the ones I've been in, are places that generally there's a fair amount of sensitivity around a lot of the issues that you're you're talking about. There, I'm sure there are rooms where it isn't. It probably, but the ones I've found myself in, we tend to be a lot of you know sort of really self-aware and people that are interested in telling stories from different perspectives. And so I've been really lucky in that respect. I think science fiction science fiction re- specifically can be an opportunity to to talk about race or social social issues in ways that because of the genre and because of the possibly say you know fantastical backdrop or something defamiliarizes in a way that actually helps Shed a, shed a new light on on the subject. It can also be a huge missed opportunity. I mean, I've seen fantasy and science fiction things where you're like, this is a totally made up world, but why is everybody basically one shade of pink? You know, like why does everybody have to look like that if this is an alien world? You know, or a high fantasy world, for instance. And so, mostly, I think though it is an exciting time in that respect. I, I've actually more had the opposite experience where people are looking to know what would be my perspective, not in a, not in a, you're the Asian guy perspective, but just as an individual who's had a certain set of experiences and does look a certain way and brings certain um, sort of baggage, you know, with me. Um, So, so far, so good. (laughs) Good. So we have been speaking with Charles Yu. His latest book is called Interior Chinatown. Thank you, Charles, for coming by. Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. 
If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 